0: I ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Text is Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask now for the illumination of your Spirit, uh, so that we might might rightly understand your word and might have the ability to live it out. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, greetings from Moscow. It's, it's wonderful to be here with you on this Lord's Day, and I'm looking forward to our time together over the next two days. Uh, this morning's sermon introduces a topic which we'll be exploring in greater depth at the Sword and Trial Conference tonight and the following two nights. And that topic, in short, is the covenantal story of Of Scripture, the covenantal story of Scripture. Now, the idea that Scripture tells a story is not so novel. Uh, The story starts in Genesis 1 and 2 with creation. That's where the story begins. That's followed by the fall in Genesis 3, and that is followed by the outworking of God's plan of redemption in Christ. And that begins in Genesis 3, and it runs all the way up until the book of Revelation. This is followed by the consummation of God's plan in a new heaven and a new earth. And we see this primarily in Revelation 21 and 22. Not that we don't find this spoken of elsewhere, but we have a dramatic conclusion to the story in Revelation 21 and 22. So you've heard this before, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, that's a handy way of telling the story. And for Christians, it is a familiar one. But what is perhaps less well known is that this is through and through a covenantal story. Our text today, Romans 5, 12 through 21, is a key passage which highlights the covenantal arrangement of the biblical story. So what I want to do here at the outset is to begin by uh, considering the organization of our passage. Remember, I've said that this passage is a key passage highlighting the covenantal arrangement of Scripture And it is so in a number of respects. But let's start by looking at the organization of our passage. Now, thematically, verses 12 through 21, and and do be looking at your Bibles if you have one, verses 12 through 21, these verses break down into three sections. And what I'm going to tell you is that the sections are maybe not the exact same ones as where the paragraph breaks are in your Bible. Nonetheless, I think that the passage is best broken down into these three sections. So here we go. Section 1, verses 12 through 14 address the period, the period of time from Adam to Moses. From Adam to Moses. Number 2, verses 15 through 19 offer a comparison of Adam and Christ. And then finally, number 3, verses 20 through 21 address the period from Moses to Christ. In short, and I hope for for those of you anticipating, looking forward to lunch, this this doesn't start making you too eager so that you're not able to listen, but in short, our text is arranged like a sandwich. Our text is arranged like a sandwich. Uh, Verses 12 through 14 and then 20 through 21 are like two slices of bread. The first of these talks about the time period running from Adam to Moses and the Uh, Last, the time period, the other piece of bread, the the time period from Moses to Christ. Time period from Adam to Moses, time period from Moses to Christ. Those are the two metaphorical, of course, pieces of bread. So what's in the center? I mean, that's what really, you know, bread is good, and you probably all have your bread preferences, but what really matters is what's in between those two slices of bread. So what's in the center? Well, verses 15 through 19. And verses 15 through 19 provide, we could say, the meat, the meat of the sandwich. And what is that meat? The meat is a comparison of the first Adam and the one whom 1 Corinthians 15 refers to as the last Adam, namely Christ. One piece, uh, you have between these two pieces of bread, the meat, and that meat is a comparison of these two Adams, the first and the last. And, and really, this comparison of these two atoms is the focus of the entire passage, and as such, that's going to be our focus this morning. And, and yet, before turning our attention to this comparison, to the meat, I, I want to point something out to you because it's crucial to our understanding of the covenantal arrangement of Scripture, uh, here, in this passage, the Apostle Paul breaks down human history into three main periods. We'll be talking more about these three main periods tonight. The periods identified with Adam, Moses, and Christ. Three periods of time, one identified with Adam, one with Moses, and one with Christ. And we, we, we scratch our head and say, why are these three men singled out? Why are their names so important? that entire eras of history can be associated with these names. And here's why. A monumental covenant, a monumental covenant was made that involved each of these three men. Human history, as Paul tells it, is a story in which covenant-making is epoch-defining. What's an epoch? It's a period of time. Covenant-making is epoch-defining. Now, there are many ways of breaking history into eras. Uh, in, in school, you might have learned about classical antiquity, followed by the early high and late middle ages, followed by the early and uh, late modern periods, followed by contemporary history, and that's fine as far as it goes. But the most fundamental epochal de- divisions are covenantal, those which Paul identifies here in our passage. And uh, again, we'll, we'll talk more about these three epochs during our evening sessions. For now, let me briefly state what we learn about these three covenantal eras from this passage by looking at these two slices of bread. So first, in verses 12 through 14, we learn about the covenantal era which runs from Adam to Moses. So I'll give you a brief rehearsal of what takes place in this covenantal era. Uh, God makes a covenant with Adam. We'll talk more about this tonight. Uh, One place that explicitly refers to this in Scripture is Hosea 6-7, which in speaking of the Israelites states, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. The implication is that Adam was in a covenantal arrangement with God. Well, we know that Adam transgressed that covenant and the result was, as we see in verse 12 of our text, that, quote, sin came into the world. And death through sin, so death spread to all men. In verse 14, we see that the death which Adam brought into the world reigned from Adam to Moses. Now here's an aside. You, you might have noticed, if you're really observant, you might have noticed that the first half of your Bible is called the Old Testament. Anybody notice that? The Old Testament, right? Right. Um, and you know why do we call it that? Well, it's because when Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, he used the term Testamentum to translate the Greek word for covenant. So the first half of your Bible, really, it's it's titled the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant. Uh, well, what is the Old Covenant? Again, something we're going to be talking a lot about. Well, it's a phrase that the New Testament or the New Covenant authors used to refer to the Mosaic Covenant. So when you're thinking Old Covenant, you're thinking Mosaic Covenant, and then you say to yourself, what in the world is the Mosaic Covenant? Well, it's a reference to the covenant God makes through Moses with national Israel at Mount Sinai, but it's also a reference to the other two covenants which were instrumental in the establishment of Israel in the land of Canaan, namely the Abrahamic and the Davidic Covenants. So one big package, the old covenant, we're thinking covenant with Abraham, at the center a covenant with Moses, and then covenant with David. This old covenant era, which in a shorthand manner we can refer to as the era of Moses, just uh, therefore includes everything from Genesis 12, right? Genesis 12, when we first, that's where we first meet Abraham, up through the time of the coming of Christ. And that's a lot of your Bible. Right? So we just refer to that because that covenantal era spans Genesis 12 up through the beginning of the New Covenant. We just call that the Old Covenant. And what we see in verses 12 through 14 of our passage is that the time period between Adam and we would say Genesis 12, where, where, we, still, I mean, where we first start to see what God is, is going to be doing in the bringing about of this old covenant. That, that time period, the first 11 chapters of your Bible, you know what happens there? We've got, we got some great stories, right? We've got Cain and Abel. We have the Nephilim. Who knows what to do with them? Um, we have the flood. We have the building of Babel. All of that. This was a time period. Here's Paul's point. It was a time period marked by death. Time period marked by death. So that's the first piece of bread. bread, bread, bread. Adam to Moses. Okay, let's look at the other piece of bread. Uh, Second in verses uh, 20 through 22, we're told of the time, or 20 20 to 21, we're told of the time from Moses to Christ. So as I mentioned, the Mosaic era begins when a promise is made to Abraham that he's going to have a family, (laughs) a really, really, really big family, right? That family is going to grow into a great nation and they are going to take possession of, Of a great land. Now, even though it seemed unlikely for an old man like Abraham, have a big family like that, God does fulfill His promise, and we know that Abraham's descendants become the twelve tribes. And then, through Moses, God leads them into this promised land. But before doing so, what does God do? What does He do before He leads them into that promised land? Well, He gives them a law. And that law is God's gracious instruction to his people, instructing them for how to live in a way that leads to their flourishing, that leads to their abundance. But what did this law do when it, in Paul's words, came in, when the law was given? Well, according to Paul in verse 20 of our text, what did it do? It increased the trespass. He said, no, wait a minute, what's the law supposed to do? right supposed to cramp down on those trespasses right that's why we put laws in place but what did it do it increased the trespass now why did it do so it didn't do so because you know the law made people sin rather what did the law do it exposed their sin and Paul is very clear the sin was already there before the giving of the law but having the law just made it all the more evident how sinful the people really were Uh, Borrowing from the King James translation of Galatians 3.24, it was a schoolmaster. It was a schoolmaster. It was teaching the people just how sinful their sin really was. And this was all to lead and guide people to their need of a savior, to the need of a new covenant, which is promised uh, in places like Jeremiah 31, places like Ezekiel 36. Uh, That new covenant which was promised during the old covenant era, era came in the coming of Christ. And having come, Paul in our passage enthusiastically describes it. And that description of what's so great about the new covenant come in Christ, that is the meat of our sandwich. This is what we find in verses 15 through 19. Now interestingly, in this middle section of the passage, you'll notice Paul doesn't talk about Moses at all. He doesn't talk about Moses at all. You scratch your head and say, why not? He talked about Moses when he talked about the bread, but now we get to the middle of the sandwich, and where is Moses? He's not there at all. Well, the reason is, and hopefully, I'm going to state it here, but hopefully this will become clearer in what follows and clearer during our time together this week, is that there are only two covenants which matter when it comes to whether we as human beings experience life or death. There are only two covenants that matter when it comes to, to whether we as human beings experience life or death. And so it is these two covenants and the representatives, the first Adam and the last Adam, that Paul here gives attention to. So, so let's now take a closer look at the meat. Of the sandwich, and you know, as I was writing this sermon, I kept writing meat, and, and then now, probably because it's approaching lunchtime, I'm thinking to myself, uh, you know, I don't want a sandwich with just bread and meat, right? I gotta have some other stuff in there too. So, in your mind, as you're thinking about this, imagine whatever you like to have on your sandwich. It could be, you know, pickles, maybe some lettuce, a tomato. I don't know, uh, cheese. The big idea is that this is the center. This is the good stuff. Now, in order to look at the center of this sandwich, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about three sets of twos, three sets of twos that show up in our passage, and here they are, two atoms, two actions, and two authorities, and I made them all start with A, just so it'd be easier for you. Uh, Two atoms, two actions, and two authorities, so let's start with the two atoms, in our passage, we read of, of two men, don't we? Adam and Christ. Now, Adam, of course, who's he? He's the first human being. The first human being. And in 1 Corinthians 15 to uh, 45, which I've already referred to, he's he is called the first man, Adam. The first man, Adam. In this verse, 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five, he's contrasted with the last Adam, Jesus Christ. So we've got two Adams, the first Adam and the last Adam. Now, there are, and it's interesting, in Hebrew, Adam just means man, right? Just means man. And you say to yourself, well, there are a lot of men in Scripture. There are a lot of men in Scripture. Um, why only two Adams? Why only two Adams? Well, there are only two of this kind of man. No other men like these men. So what kind of men are these? Well... Romans 5, 12 to 21 addresses this very thing. I know we're talking about the center of the sandwich, but I'm going to zoom out just a little bit to consider as a whole, what does this passage tell us about these two men? And when we're looking, we see that two things stand out. Two things stand out. First, we find that two different dominions or authorities, that of death and life, are extended, and note the word here, through, through these two men. Two dominions, two authorities, are extended through these men. And what we're taught in verses such as 14, 15, and 17 is that the dominion, rule, and authority of death come through. He's the pipeline. They come through the one man, Adam. That's not good. So thankfully, the dominion, rule, and authority of life come through the one man, Christ. So that's the first thing we notice about these two men. huh? Something comes through them. Second, in verses 18 and 19, we learn that the actions of these two men two men, impact, in one place it says all men, in another place, the many. And I, I think by all men there, it's just talking about a large group of men, and by men there, it doesn't mean just men, of course. Men and women. So the actions of these two men impact a lot of other people. Something comes through them and then impacts many other people. So we read that one trespass led to condemnation for all men. On the other hand, one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Here's the implication. The implication is that whatever each of these two men do does not just affect them. Rather, it affects a large group of people. Their actions have immediate consequences for others, either for good or for ill. What, what do we do with that? You know, these men are conduits of some kind. Something comes through them, and then it impacts a lot of other people. So, What do we call that? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the theological term for this. You don't have to use this terminology. It doesn't really matter. It's just simply trying to capture something that very much is right here in the text. In theological language, we have a fancy name. We call these men covenantal heads. Covenantal heads. That's what we call them. And so so we say to ourselves, covenantal heads? What? You know, I don't even know what a covenant is. Okay, well, what's a covenant? Well, in simple terms, and here I'm, I'm using the dictionary, right? To keep it really precise. This is Merriam-Webster, if you want to look it up. A covenant is a formal, solemn, and binding agreement. A formal, solemn, and binding agreement. Now, you say to yourself, okay, for formal, solemn, binding, you know, what kind of thing is a covenant? It, 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 the truth of the matter is you and I make covenants all the time. We're always doing it, Right? Um, here, here's an example. When we sign the documents on an automobile loan, have, have any of you ever signed the documents on an automo- automobile loan? Or, or are you one of those kind of people who probably does what they should do and just saves up all your money first and just go buy the car with cash? Well, I have signed documents on an automobile loan. And what we've done when we do that is we've covenanted with the lender. We've covenanted with the lender We are responsible for making payments and making them on time, and if we do, the lender agrees to give us the benefit, the blessing, of possession and eventual sole ownership of the vehicle. But if you know know what happens if you violate the terms of that covenant, don't you? What happens? You know, if you don't pay your car payment, well, you face the potential consequence, or you could say curses, of Breaking covenant meaning repossession, right? So we're familiar with covenants. Now that, that above example illustrates that covenants typically include some responsibilities, uh, some benefits, and sanctions. A, a sanction is uh, a, a word we use to describe threatened penalties for breaking covenant. You know, it's pretty clear up front. You don't pay your car payment. You're not going to get to keep driving it, right? So you have this sanction, repossession. Now, one thing to take notice of is that a covenant can be entered into by an individual representing just himself, right? Or a covenant can be entered into by an individual who represents others. Here's an example. Uh, when the president of the United States enters into a trade agreement with the leader of a foreign nation, each national leader is entering into a covenant on behalf of those whom they represent, right? Uh, In this sense, we we could say each national leader is a covenant head, right? So when you have a trade agreement, there usually are benefits and and sanctions. Um, The sanctions are like the thing you don't want to happen if you don't uphold your end of the bargain in in the trade agreement, and you as a United States citizen, let's say our president violates the terms of that covenant, who's it going to impact? Just him? It's going to impact you. What he does impacts other people. And that's the essential idea in mind when we use fancy language like covenant or federal head. Federal, we'll talk about this later, it's comes from the term foetus. It just means the base, basically the same thing as covenant head. What we're talking about is a person who enters into an agreement of some kind and what they do impacts not just them, but other people. Uh, and this same basic idea is present with these two men, the two Adams in Romans five twelve through 21. The first Adam was a covenant head, meaning that his actions affected those whom he represents. And the same is the case with the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Uh, The similarity is such that in Romans 5.14, did you see this? Paul can even call the first Adam, what's he call him? A type. A type of the second Adam, the one who was to come. Here's the idea. The idea is that the first Adam, in his role as covenant head, prefigured prefigured the covenantal headship of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. You say, well, what's similar between Adam and Christ? I can't think of much, right? This guy disobeys, that guy obeys. Well, yeah, that's true. In that sense, there's not much similar. But there is a way in which they are similar, in that they both function as representative personalities, where what they do impacts other people for good or for ill. So, what did they do? What did they do? Let's talk briefly about their actions. That's the second A, if you're keeping track. Uh, well, Adam, in our passage, we're told that he uh, he trespassed, he sinned, he did not obey. Um, that word for disobedience, it's it's interesting. It it makes me think of my kids. Um, That term translated disobedience literally means uh, to fail to hear. To fail to hear, right? Um, So in Jewish thought, it it actually didn't mean that you didn't hear. What, What it means is that you did hear it. You just don't like what you heard, right? It was okay. Tell your kids, I, I didn't hear you, right? I didn't hear you. Uh, so this is what Adam does in, in Genesis. He hears God's word and he fails to heed it. Uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, God speaks. He gives commands. He gives Adam a law. And that law has two essential components. Two. What are those components? Number one, do this. Number two, don't do that, right? That's the law he gives them. What was the do this? The do this was, and we'll um, use one word to kind of capture all that's included in it. The one word was dominion. One word is dominion. Do this, exercise dominion. Right? That, that's a, a kingly kind of role. You know, what, what do kings do? Where, well, they're, they're charged with the care of the kingdom, right? They're charged with the care of, of, of the kingdom, the kingdom, of course, that's all God's stuff. And God puts Adam in a place of responsibility to care for all his stuff. Exercise dominion. Care for it well. See to its flourishing. That's number one. Do that. Number two, don't do this. (laughs) What's he not supposed to do? Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You say, why not? You know, why not? Had just this wonderful fruit that God was trying to hold back from Adam, right? So he didn't have the tastiest morsel. No, we'll talk more about that later. Either way, what we know right now is don't eat it, don't eat it. And we find that Adam indeed did eat it. Um, it's, It's interesting. We don't get a lot in Genesis about like what's going on through Adam's mind. We're just told that Eve says, here, try this and then we're just given these three words, which are actually only one word in Hebrew, and he ate. <laughs> he did it. He did it. Uh, just one man, just one act of disobedience, and yet, what an earth-shattering act. Because by the act of this one man, we're told in our passage that death spread to all men. So what about the act of the second man, the last Adam? Well, in, in verse 18 of Romans 5, we're told of the one act of righteousness. And then in verse 19, we're told that this was an act of obedience. He heard and obeyed. He heard and heeded. And then we ask ourselves, okay, um, what, he just obeyed one time? Like To what degree did he obey? Well, Philippians 2.8 says that he was obedient to the point of death. He was obedient to the point of death. Now, don't mistake that for saying that, or meaning that Christ only obeyed at the point of death. Right? His entire life was a life marked by obedience, and he obeyed to the fullest, and what that meant ultimately was the giving of his life. And there's something unique about this one act, kind of where it all culminates in Christ's life, this act of obedience, allowing himself to be put to death, um, there's something special about that one act. Uh, right before a passage in Romans 5 8, Paul singles out this act. He's, and he says, This while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you say to yourself, It's just one man. <laughs> just one act. And what's the big deal? Just one man, just one act. Well, that one man doing that one thing was earth shattering again. Because this one act of this one man led to life for all men. Now now, now this is the heartbeat of the gospel. It's, it's, It's the good news that while we were all born in Adam and thus destined for death, Christ lived and died for us in our place. And if we look to faith in Christ, we are graciously free from condemnation and we are heirs of eternal life. Would you agree? That's good news. Uh, it's, it's a very simple message. And it's simply true. But it's, here, here's what I want you to see. It's only true. That message is only true because of how God has ordered the world of men. Uh, When it comes to whether one's life will be defined by life or by death, there are only two acts made by two men that we can look to. For every person through all times and every place, you are either covenantally represented by the actions of the first or the last Adam. And as such, either death in the first Adam or life in the last Adam is imputed to you. And This brings us to our third and final point this morning. This third point—well, it's not a point actually. It's, there are there are lots of points. I'm gonna—it's the third A. That's what I, its the third A. The th- third and final A this morning. And it, it's interesting sometimes when you come to a text and you're getting ready to preach it and you're studying it and you think this is what I want to talk about, you know, this is what I want to talk about, and you know, this text is going to help me say what I want to say. But what's interesting sometimes is you get into a text. And the text is, you find out, oh, it's, it's saying maybe something a little different than what I wanted to say, right? Um, and this third A was the one that kind of caught me by surprise as I was studying this passage. Okay, so we've talked so far about two men and two actions, as well as the result of those actions, the curse of death for those covenantally in Adam, and the blessing of life for those covenantally in Christ. But the one thing we haven't given much of any attention to, maybe a tiny, tiny bit, is Paul's usage of the term "rain" throughout the passage? Did you notice that he keeps saying? And I, you know, my initial readings of the passage, I just kind of gloss over it. Yeah, we're going to talk about these two covenant head guys and you know what they did and what that means for us. And but, you know, why is this pesky word "rain"? Why does it keep coming up in this passage? Um, and this is two. Uh, two authorities, and we're going to find out that these two authorities are connected in our passage to two abundances, two authorities and two abundances. So let's talk about Paul's usage of this term reign. He uses it in verse 14. See that? He says, death reigned. It reigned from Adam, not like R-A-I-N-E-D, right? But it ruled. It ruled from Adam to Moses. And then we see it again in verse 17. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned. And then a bit later in the same verse, those who receive, and this is talk, keep this in mind, because we're going to come back to it shortly. Um, in verse 17, it's speaking of some people. And it says, those who receive, and think to yourself, who are those people? It's us. That... that that's talking about us. And here's what it says. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. They rule in life. That, that uh, word shows up again in verse 21. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Now, the language here is of rule. It's of authority. It is of dominion. And you say, wait a minute, I've heard about that dominion thing before. Wasn't Adam supposed to exercise dominion? And we find that there are two kinds of rule. The rule of death, a deathly rule, or the rule of life, a life-giving rule. And what we find is that this rule is linked to the covenant heads in this passage, and it's linked to those represented by them. The first Adam, again, was a type of the last Adam. He was a kingly figure, having been, be, having been charged with taking dominion. And this authority, Well, like, how was he supposed to use this authority? Well, well, it was to be used to bring about the flourishing of God's good creation. It was to be a rule unto life. Now, of course, this was not autonom- autonomous rule, right? But rule as a vice regent meaning rule under the rulership of God. And we find that that deviation from God's law would bring about the corruption of all that was under Adam's authority. And what was under Adam's authority? All God's stuff. Not just people. All God's stuff. And we know that Adam did deviate from God's law. Indeed, he reputed it. And because of this, as it says in Romans 5, 12, again, death spread to all men. Everything you see around you that is corrupt, all that you see around you that is broken, all that is broken in your life is an extension of Adam's rule. This is the way in which the dominion given to him by God was carried out as the king goes so goes the kingdom adam was put in a place of authority over it all and his mismanagement of that his sin his his transgression resulted in all the brokenness we see around us but thanks be to god adam was but a type of the one to come thankfully adam was not the first and final king but only the first Where Adam failed in his rule, Christ has succeeded and will continue to do so until, as it states in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Uh, Backing up in this passage in verses 25 and 26, 1 Corinthians 15, that is, we learn of what Christ's dominion, Adam was charged with taking dominion, how did he do? Poorly. (laughs) Christ, the second Adam, the one of whom Adam was a type. He takes dominion as well, and we're told what that dominion looks like. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and 26. For he must reign. It's not like it, he might. He might reign that way. He must reign. He will reign until. He'll keep doing it. There's no end to what he's doing. He's going to keep doing it until when? Until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Uh, Today we live in a world where the dominion of death in Adam is at war with the dominion of life in Christ. Today we see two ways of carrying out the charge of dominion given to humanity in conflict. One seeks to extend a dominion of death the other a dominion of life. And perhaps more than any time in our lives, the fact that a lack of acknowledging Christ's rule inevitably leads to the advancement of a dominion of death, that's just palpable, isn't it? Uh, I mean, a, a person doesn't need to know anything about covenant theology to know that. And so it's understandable that many, when faced with the ascendancy of the rule of death in our culture, would be tempted to despair, flee, go hide out somewhere. But this is where faith comes in. This is where faith comes in. Uh, faith, as Hebrews 11.1 1 teaches, is the assurance. Like, I'm assured. I really believe it. It's re. I'm banking my life on it. It's really going to happen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I don't see any evidence of it. And yet I really believe it. That's faith. Uh, Just before our passage in Romans 4, Paul speaks of Abraham's example of faith. And what a wonderful passage. He says this, We're told Abraham's faith was such that no unbelief, none at all, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So then we must ask ourselves, what has God promised to do? Again, 1 Corinthians 15 Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Having come as the last Adam, and perfectly upheld the covenant which Adam transgressed. Jesus has conquered death. He is now ruling. He is now reigning at the right hand of the Father, and he will, he must reign until every enemy, death included, is vanquished. And that's a promise. But that's not all. Matthew 28, 18. You know, what, what a wonderful passage. You all know what that is, don't you? Matthew 28, 18. That's the Great Commission, right? It's the Great Commission. We all know this. What does Jesus say to his disciples before he ascends and leaves them? He says this, all authority, all dominion, all rule in heaven and on earth. So what's left out there? Heaven, earth. That's everything, right? It's all been given to me. And on that basis, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And he also tells his disciples, I'm with you always until the end of the age. I'm with you until my plan of restoration, my plan of redemption is fully consummated. And what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, you know, we're part of this, but what, what we're told that in Matthew 28. What 1 Corinthians 15 tells us is that Christ is actively taking dominion over it all right now, and he's going to continue to do so until every enemy has been defeated. That's what we're part of as Christians. That's what we're part of as the church, because the way that God is doing this, one of the primary ways he's doing this is he's doing so, he's taking dominion through you and I, through his authorized vice regents, through those who are in Christ through the church. We then, what's our charge? Extend Christ's reign of life. We're to carry out that charge of dominion originally given to the first Adam in a way that leads to creation's flourishing. I mean, Matthew 28, great evangelism text. right? Great evangelism text, as it should be. But there's so much more. What, what, what Christ has charged us with is being the light in the world. What Christ has charged us with is extending God's benevolent rule so that this world will flourish. Now, let me wrap things up and conclude here briefly. Recall that I said earlier that there are, there, you know, there are different ways of telling the story of the world, different ways of kind of breaking down various epochs, Here's the good news of the, the biblical perspective on the timeline of history. This is a covenantal story, remember. And when we keep that in mind, we notice where are we? Where are we on that timeline? Well, we don't live in the era of Adam. We don't live in the era of Moses. Where do we live? We live in the era of Christ. We live in a time... When redemption is giving way to consummation, a time which, according to Colossians 1.13, those born in Adam have been delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Out from under the rule of darkness into the benevolent rule of the Son. So, here's my encouragement to you. Despite how it may appear, have faith. Have faith. Take heart, as Jesus says in John sixteen thirty three. because I, that is he, have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. So take heart and believe that Christ has ascended as king and that he will and he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Take heart, knowing that he is not accomplishing this in an abstract way detached way, but he's doing so concretely through us, through his people, through the church, whom whom he is with until the end of the age. It's in and through us that the dominion of death, which the first Adam brought about, is now being reversed as the light of Christ in us overcomes the darkness. So on that note, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you have organized and and orchestrated reality. Lord, I hope that you you would help us to see our place within it. Um, I I hope you would help us to see not only that our our sins are forgiven in Christ, not only that we are counted righteous in Christ, but that that in Christ we've been brought into your your plan of, of redemption and your working through us right now to bring about your benevolent rule rule in this world. I pray that you would equip us for that through your Holy Spirit, that you would see areas of our life and areas uh, that have to do with our interactions with one another where where we need to be those light bearers, where we need to be those who are exercising God's benevolent rule unto flourishing. And I, I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.